0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Food Disruptors, an IFT podcast that brings you the latest insights and perspectives from some of the brightest minds in the science of food. Each episode, our guests discuss the ever-changing intersection of entrepreneurship, innovation, and science, and their role in advancing the global food system. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden, and today's podcast is just in time for New Year's resolutions, because we'll be talking about the upcoming 2020-2025 Dietary Guidelines for Americans. While the new guidelines are expected to be announced by the end of the year, we're joined today by Dr. Barbara Schneeman, a professor emerita at UC Davis, and Dr. Rick Mattis, distinguished professor at Purdue University, to discuss the recommendations that were made. Both of them served on the guidelines committee. Dr. Schneeman served as chair of the 2020 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, and Dr. Mattis was a member of the 2020 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, specifically the Beverages and Added Sugar Subcommittee, as well as the Frequency of Eating Subcommittee. Thanks so much, both of you, for taking the time to join me today.
1: Great. It's good to be here. Thanks for including me in the Food Disruptors
2: podcast.
0: Yeah, happy to be here as well. So let's dive right in. I, I know like a lot of the dietary guidelines go and the, and the recommendations go, it always takes place against some backdrop of you know several significant nutrition-related issues um, specific to the United States. Barbara, I was hoping you could provide a high-level overview of what the sort of backdrop of these recommendations are and how they influence the committee's recommendations
1: right you're you're correct that there are several significant nutrition related issues in the United States that the dietary guidelines are really aimed at at addressing um, and just to to start out, if we look at some of the data that is in NHANES, and our committee did a lot of data analysis, that data analysis indicates that for most Americans, the dietary patterns that they're consuming are not consistent with the recommendations in the current dietary guidelines. The current guidelines being the 2015-2020 the edition. So we, we know that there are discrepancies there between what's recommended and what people are, are actually consuming. Um, we also have to factor in that more than 70% of Americans have overweight and obesity. And the prevalence of overweight and obesity is increasing at younger ages. This high prevalence of overweight and obesity is then a driver for the diet-related chronic diseases, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, certain types of, of cancers. We know from the data from CDC that 6 in 10 Americans have one chronic condition. 4 in 10 probably have two of these chronic conditions. Um, obviously, there are various factors that are involved in the incidence and the prevalence of these chronic t- conditions, but prevalent among those, condi- those factors are unhealthy dietary patterns and lack of physical activity. So that's another layer. Then a third layer is that for many Americans, food insecurity and lack of access to affordable, healthy food choices further complicate the picture and certain households are impacted disproportionately such as low income several um, groups like the black non-hispanic and hispanic and households with young children or single head of household households that we know that these various groups are um, impacted by food insecurity and lack of access to healthy food choices and then all of these factors were further complicated by the COVID pandemic, which then emerged as the committee was moving into the final phases of its work. So as noted in our cover letter to the secretaries of USDA and the HHS, there are in fact two epidemics that are impacting the health of our population. One, a non-infectious epidemic related to the prevalence of overweight and obesity and the related comorbidities, and the other epidemic, this infectious epidemic due to coronavirus. And these two epidemics are in fact interrelated because those most at risk for serious outcomes from COVID-19 include those with diet-related chronic diseases. In addition, the economic disruptions due to the pandemic have increased food insecurity and hunger, further impacting the ability of households to have healthy, nutritious diets. So that, that's kind of the background of nutrition-related issues that the committee did its work and, and formed its, its findings and its conclusions for the next edition of the Dietary Guidelines.
0: Wow, so, you know, totally uncomplicated, right?
1: (laughs) Well, and especially dealing with the fact that as the COVID-19 pandemic emerged, it certainly affected the way we could work together, but also just the importance of recognizing the significance of that in relation to the prevalence of overweight and obesity and chronic disease, diet-related chronic diseases.
2: I, I might expand on that just a little bit. It, you know, it takes time to run clinical trials and, and surveys to see what the impact has been of COVID on, on body weight and, and so on. But the preliminary evidence coming out is sort of concern, confirming people's concerns. Um, that is, uh, people are uh, eating more out of boredom and uh, stress. They are choosing foods that are uh, high energy, not necessarily nutrient dense, um, and and so it's really set the stage for exacerbating the problems of, of positive energy balance and weight gain. Mm.
0: Yeah, I can certainly relate to to <laughs> putting my hand in the cookie jar, so to speak. <clears throat> now, I, do, I I am wondering too. So, <clears throat> I feel like in previous years, you know we keep hearing very similar things, you know, the the high prevalence of overweight and obesity and things like that. How how has the committee considered these um, moving forward for this set of recommendations? Is it a building on the evidence that was already there? Have we learned anything new that would influence the recommendations? Could either of you speak to that?
1: I, I can open the discussion. It's definitely a building upon what has been done previously. So, um, you know, the committee does look back at the work of the 2015-2020 um, advisory committee, their analysis, how that played into the the dietary guidelines, You know, there were several changes in the way the committee operated this year, in part in response to a report that came out from the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine on redesigning the process for um, developing the dietary guidelines for Americans. And so one thing was to focus on certain topics and questions that um, had gone through a process where the federal government had identified those topics and questions where additional science advice was needed. It held a public comment period on that. And then the charter for the committee um, was framed around the topics and questions that, that we were to address. So the committee composition then was specifically chosen Around those topics and questions. So, yeah, there there are changes, that's a constantly evolving process, a constant improving of the um, way the scientific evidence is evaluated. You know, there are three general techniques that are used: the data analysis looking at analysis such as NHANES, food pattern modeling, which we'll probably talk a little bit more about, and then the systematic reviews. And those systematic reviews building on what's been done in the past um, is a key to uh, the findings and conclusions from the advisory committee.
0: I think this is a good segue, actually, to talk about one of those uh, sort of priority questions. And, And one area that had a dedicated subcommittee was around the frequency of eating and its impact on our quality and length of life. Rick, you were part of this committee, so could you share what the committee found in regard to eating frequency in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, yeah, Uh, let let me start by uh, providing a little bit of uh, additional background on this one, because this is the first time uh, the committee uh, sought to uh, address uh, this issue of eating frequency. You know, as Barb mentioned, we have a very high prevalence of overweight and obesity in in, in the population, and it's primarily determined by uh, dietary factors. Uh, Energy expenditure is certainly important, uh, but the positive energy balance is, is driven more by our food choices uh, than anything else. And, and total energy intake is uh, a function of portion size, how much we eat when, when we choose to eat, uh, but also by how frequently we choose to eat. Uh, those two together uh, really determine total energy intake. We could eat one or two times a day and have relatively large meals, or we could eat six times a day as long as those eating events are, are small. Uh, the problem is the reciprocity there that we hope uh, exists um, uh, doesn't. Uh, and and the, uh, the uh, positive energy balance, the, the weight gain that we see in the population is evidence of that. So there There's been a fair amount of research on uh, the effects of portion size, uh, but much less known about eating frequency. And and in particular, people are concerned about snacking. Snacking is not a perfect index of eating frequency, but it's it's a pretty reasonable proxy uh, for it. So um, uh, the the committee uh, spent uh, a lot of time trying to decide what what the definition should be of an eating event or or a snack, and that's not a straightforward question. Uh, People define eating events differently. Do you include beverages alone? Is that an eating event? Uh, What do we do if somebody ingests something that has no calories, like a, a, a diet soda, for example, is that an eating event or not? And then how do you discriminate one eating event from another? How much time has to pass between them? Is it just courses within a meal? Is it how much time between when you sit and stand? All of these are are poorly defined and has really led to a lack of understanding of eating frequency. And eating frequency has an effect not just on the amount of energy that we consume, but probably also on how we metabolize, digest and metabolize the food that we have consumed. It influences the release of hormones uh, that control how quickly food passes through our GI tract and as uh, well as how we use the nutrients that are absorbed out of the GI tract, uh, things like insulin. And so on. So there are metabolic effects and behavioral dietary effects, and 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 so it, it was time to take a cold hard look at the effects of eating frequency. Unfortunately, though, because these issues of lack of standardized definitions and and lack of focus on this topic, the literature that was available for addressing the questions posed to the committee, uh, which had to do uh, with the effects of of eating frequency on growth size, body composition, and and risk of overweight and obesity, as well as uh, risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, the evidence base was really lacking. And as a result, the the group found there was insufficient evidence to really draw conclusions about the risk for overweight and obesity, uh, as well as cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Uh, and there was no evidence at all to draw on draw conclusions about all-cause cause mortality. So in, in that regard, probably the most important finding of this subcommittee was that we lack sufficient evidence to answer the questions that are most important to policymakers and clinicians to render advice. And so the future recommendations may be the strongest output from this committee. But there was... There was an analysis that that helped to uh, define sort of where we are in this regard. And so the the committee found that uh, in the population, there's a mean of about 5.7 eating events a day. So that's that's a dramatic increase over the last uh, several decades. Uh, we have sort of this historical image of, of three meals a day. It's been a while since we only had three meals a day, but but it has gone up sharply. About 64% of the population now eats three meals a day, uh, and another 28% or so eats two meals a day, but a good not over 90% of the population is now engaging in, in snacking or Sort of non-meal ingestive events or eating events on a given day. And, and that's how we get to the 5.7. And these extra eating events, these non-meal eating events are substantial. They, they contribute somewhere around 22, 23% of daily energy intake. They actually account for more energy than the mean contribution from breakfast. So it it really is a uh, substantive part of our dietary pattern. And we find that these these extra eating events can be energy dense and not so nutrient dense. They contribute up to about 35% of the added sugar in the diet. And these eating events that occur later in the evening tend to be higher in food components that we would recommend people start to moderate to improve the quality of their diet, things like alcohol, sodium, saturated fat, and added sugars. But the other point, and and, and a very important point to make, is that while these non-meal eating events uh, can be problematic for promoting weight gain uh, and so on, they do also contribute nutrients that are essential and in short supply in the food in our food choices so it's it's not a black or white uh, story we want to include some of these extra eating events because they can in, improve the the appeal of our diet and and making food enjoyable is, is also a goal, uh, but they can also contribute uh, nutrients of need. So it, it's a balance there.
1: Yeah, and if if I could just add to Rick's comments, he, he referred to the, the research need. And in the advisory committee's report, there's a chapter of future directions. And in that future directions chapter, we identify research needs around many of the topics that the the committee examined. And we also point to the fact that there are some topics that will be important in the next cycle of the dietary guidelines, since it's a process that happens every five years. And we, we talked about some ways to improve the process as well. But finding those research areas that are critically important for future recommendations, that's a great place to start is that future directions chapter.
0: Right. And I know even, I believe the NIH even laid out in their strategic plan for nutrition research, the importance of, I guess, time in general, in terms of dietary patterns and, and how that's actually a factor that needs to be considered. So you know, I think the fact that the committee looked into this is, is really important because it is, like you're saying, one of those unexplored areas that we need a lot more evidence to, to really make strong recommendations.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, one one of the popular dietary patterns now is fasting of, of various lengths, uh, intermittent fasting and, and so on. And, and the committee really could not address the importance of timing with respect to, for example, skipping breakfast or late night eating or issues of intermittent fasting. Uh, all of that is is really very under-researched. And given the popularity of, of these approaches now for moderating uh, energy intake and, and body uh, composition and, and, and body weight, uh, it's crucial that we get uh, additional information on those, those kinds of patterns.
0: Absolutely. So, Another topic that was discussed, and I know this has been discussed before, but it continues to be an issue, is the reduction in sugar. Of course, this focus is growing for a lot of manufacturers and consumers, but I'm curious as to what evidence was reviewed on the Beverages and Added Sugar Subcommittee and what the recommendations that were made about these areas.
2: Yeah, there's a a bit more uh, of an evidence base here. though though still not not sufficient. So uh, there there were, as Barb mentioned, three types of analyses, uh, a a data analysis, which sort of uses the large uh, databases to get a better picture of where we stand uh, with respect to added sugars. There was a systematic review to address uh, what role they may play in risk for diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Uh, as well as overweight and obesity. And then very importantly in in this committee's work uh, was food pattern modeling to uh, try to get a better sense of what would happen if we uh, modified our intake of added sugars. So perhaps I'll give a a bit of a high-level overview from uh, those three levels of analysis. In, in, in terms of the data analysis, this is the, the review of N. Haynes and what we eat in America and so on. Uh, what we see is that added sugars are now contributing about 13% of energy in the diet of Americans uh, one year and older. So it's, it's a very substantial source of energy. It, it works out to about 16 teaspoons per day uh, of added sugar. And if you look at the 75th percentile of intake in, in the population, that uh, the added sugars are now contributing about 400 kilocalories in males and about 300 kilocalories uh, in females. Uh, so this, this really is um, a major contribution. You mentioned changes in, in consumption of added sugars. There there has, in fact, been a change. The proportion of the population consuming greater than 10% of energy from added sugars, and, and this 10% sort of stems from recommendations from other groups like the World Health Organization, the 2015 Dietary Guidelines, uh, Healthy People 2020, they all recommended a goal of uh, less than 10% or very close to that of energy from added sugars. So that's where the statistic comes from uh, in terms of what proportion of the population is meeting that goal. And and it has uh, declined from uh, 2007 to 2010, about 70% of the population failed to meet that goal. But by 2013 to 2016, uh, it had dropped to 63 percent. So that's a step in the right direction. Unfortunately, it, it turns out that uh, people have compensated by increasing their their intake of of uh, fats, so that total energy intake actually has not been reduced despite the reduction in in added sugars. Uh, But we are moving in the right direction uh, with regard to added sugars. But a very important finding, too, was that about 70 percent of added sugars are derived from five food categories. And and those are beverages, desserts and sweet snacks, uh, coffee and tea, uh, because we tend to sweeten them, uh, candy and sugars, and finally breakfast cereals and bars. Uh, and uh, by far the largest contributor uh, is beverages. Uh, they contribute about 37% of, of added sugar. So that one category alone is, is often targeted uh, as a place for trying to implement change uh, that, that may reduce energy intake without uh, adversely affecting uh, nutrient intake. But again, uh, we have to keep in mind that these five foods, uh, food categories that are the major contributors of added sugars also contribute important nutrients to the diet. Uh, They contribute about 17% of total grains, greater than 40% of whole grains in in the diet, greater than 20% of of dairy intake, and 15 to 18% of calcium, uh, potassium, dietary fiber, and vitamin D. So, once again, it, it's not a matter of necessarily uh, eliminating these foods from, from the diet. We certainly don't want to do that. They are sources of other important nutrients. It's a matter of, of moderation that, that we're seeking. So that, that's kind of the snapshot of where we stand with added, added sugar intake with respect to the association between added sugars and type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease uh, risk, once again, sadly, we came to the conclusion that there was insufficient evidence for cardiovascular disease and growth size and body weight and risk for overweight and obesity. And uh, we didn't take on the question of, of diabetes. There was just a limitation of, of time and, and the amount of work the committee could accomplish. Uh, so, so that one wasn't taken on and it was recommended that uh, that be addressed by future committees. But let's get to the food pattern modeling, because that is really, I think, where we gained important new insights that led to some real changes in recommendations between the 2015 committee and and our committee. So one question was, how much added sugar can we incorporate into the diet uh, whilst uh, meeting our uh, other dietary goals? And so, in the food pattern modeling group, they looked at diets that ranged in energy intake from 1,000 kilocalories up to 3,200 kilocalories per day in 200 kilocalorie increments. So, a diet that has uh, 1,000 kilocalories, 1,200, 1,400, 1,600, so on. And they calculated how much energy would be obtained by making healthy food choices, selecting foods that are nutrient dense and relatively low energy dense, how much energy would be required from a diet composed of such foods to meet dietary goals? And uh, if we use 2,000 kilocalories as an example, because the mean intake in the population is about 2,060 or so kilocalories per day, so so this is pretty average, it would take 17. Uh, 1,759 kilocalories to meet nutrient goals in a 2,000 kilocalorie diet. So there's about 241 kilocalories remaining for discretionary intake uh, by people. And if we assume a ratio of added solid fats to added sugars of um, 55% to 45%. So of those 241 kilocalories, if we assume 55% of that energy comes from uh, solid fats and 45% from added sugars, then it turns out that we can get about 5% daily energy from added sugars without exceeding our energy needs. That is without putting us in positive energy balance and at risk for weight gain. Now, it's important to emphasize that this is, uh, again, a question of reciprocity. If uh, one chose to reduce uh, solid fat intake, uh, one could increase uh, added sugars up to about 12% of energy if total saturated fat was eliminated, Uh, but that's unlikely to occur. Uh, But that's the upper limit, 12%. And and, uh, obviously, if you eliminated the added sugars, then you could have more saturated fat. But people people enjoy their sugar; it, it does uh, improve the the appeal uh, of the diet. But um, if you look at run this exercise for different uh, diets ranging from again from 1,000 to about 2,800 kilocalories, so covering almost everybody in the population. The amount of added sugar that could be included without going into positive energy balance ranges from three to six percent. And remember, I, I said we started with a goal of 10 percent of energy. But in looking at this data, the committee thought that actually was perhaps an overgenerous allotment. And, and so they have recommended, the, the committee recommended that the target be six percent. Uh, rather than 10%, and uh, it remains to be seen if that will be adopted in, in the final version of the dietary guidelines, but it's the recommendation from, uh, from the committee. Another aspect of the modeling exercise was to say, if we reduced added sugars, would it make a, su- a difference of, of sufficient magnitude to actually improve the quality of the diet? Could people in different age and gender categories uh, do a better job meeting goals for, for example, fruit and vegetable intake, whole grain intake, and so on? Or is it really trivial and not worth all the effort to coax people into changing uh, their added sugar intake? And, And the important finding there was that indeed, if this could be moderated, and 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 sort of smarter food choices made, more nutrient dense food choices made, very substantial gains could be made in in meeting nutrient goals uh, across the lifespan. so that that's an important message that that engaging in in uh, behavior change in in our dietary patterns really can make a difference. And the final question was how how do we select these foods and, How does that play into meeting uh, the goals of uh, maintaining energy balance? And, And the exercise there showed that if we continue to select foods that we customarily choose now, that it will not be possible to meet our dietary goals without being in positive energy balance. We are going to have to change our food choices in order to meet goals and not be in positive energy balance. So another very important finding uh, from this committee.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean the role of of eating behavior and food choice is just something that I think is really kind of a, a growing field. And I think this report definitely calls that out as as another area where we need a little bit more research to to really understand how we can better implement some of these recommendations.
1: Right. And and some of the examples that Rick gave about how could you redeploy those calories from added sugars, it, it really opens up more of a discussion of it's not just reduce the amount of sugar within a particular category, but really think about what the overall dietary pattern should be, what foods could be included in the diet to better meet the recommendations for nutrient intake and food group intakes.
0: Right. That's a great. That's great work. It's super interesting. I, I do want to turn to a, a population group that has a little bit less of a choice in the type of food they eat. But this actually feels pretty major because this is the first time that the guidelines will include advice for infants. And I am curious, Barbara, maybe if you could touch on this on on why this was a focus this time around and what recommendations were made.
1: Right. Um, I I should point out, first of all, it turns out the 1985 um, dietary guidelines did have some recommendations for toddlers and infants. I think what's unique about this particular cycle is just the level of work using those three approaches of um, data analysis, food pattern modeling, and systematic reviews to really look in depth at the topics and questions that were asked to come up with our findings and and conclusions. So one of the reasons why it was included, the Agricultural Act of 2014, the the Farm Bill, basically mandated that the 2020-2025 dietary guidelines needed to include recommendations for the birth through 24-month population, um, pregnancy, and lactation. Typically, the guidelines have been for two years and older, and so that was a mandate to include those particular groups in the next edition of the Dietary Guidelines. So to prepare for that edition, because it is a significant addition and a significant examination of additional evidence, USDA and HHS convened a set of technical working groups, And they went through the process of identifying evidence, developing some systematic reviews, really laying the framework. They were not making recommendations for the dietary guidelines, but they were laying the framework for the evidence that could be examined once the 2020 cycle began for the the dietary guidelines. So coming out of those technical working groups HHS then was able to identify the topics and questions for those particular population groups that were then added to the charter of the 2020 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. In addition, the the membership of the advisory committee was expanded. We had 20 members in total. And that expansion of membership was to be sure we had the full expertise that was needed, included the expertise for this B24 um, pregnancy and and lactation group. And we had subcommittees working on that. In addition, the vice chair of the committee, Ron Kleiman, again, bringing expertise in that area into the, the work of the committee. So the the findings and the conclusions from the committee's evaluation are in chapters two through seven. (laughs) So as you can guess by by just giving that range, it's quite a bit of material um, given the scope of of work to include. And so I'm just gonna highlight a a few of the items. Certainly one of the top priorities was to highlight the importance of breastfeeding and human milk especially during the first year of life and particularly in that first six-month period where that ability to have exclusive breastfeeding of human milk is a possibility. So that's that's a key part of the, the recommendations. And so then looking at the introduction of complementary foods around the six-month period, the committee really worked hard to develop some appropriate dietary patterns that could complement human milk or infant formula feeding. And it's a challenge because you, you you have to consider the nutrient composition of the human milk as compared to the nutrient composition of infant formula. So you have to think about those dietary patterns, recognizing that, um, human milk or infant formula is still the majority of the, the energy intake. So when it's all said and done, we were not able to establish a recommended food pattern for that 6 to 12-month age range. We we did come up with some concepts that we thought were important to include. So we, we did discuss that, and certainly we regard that as an area critically important for future work to keep working on that that particular age range. For toddlers in that 12 to 24 months that are not fed human milk or infant formula, the committee did establish a food pattern. And as you can imagine, I'm sure, a real challenge in each of these age groups is really there's a very high nutrient need but a very limited amount of calories in which to meet those needs. So that's the, the balancing act that you're trying to uh, play off in developing those those food patterns. <laughs> just coming back to what we were just talking about with the added sugars, given that that challenge of what, can, what do you need to fit into the energy needs at that age, we pointed out that there's really no the food components such as added sugars can't really fit into these food patterns. So that was a very clear recommendation that there really are no residual calories for energy from something like like added sugars. I would also point out that we were using the food pattern modeling in this age group that has typically been used for the two years and older dietary patterns, food patterns. And we, we pointed out that More is needed to think through the methodology around food pattern modeling, sort of using what's been traditionally used, but also thinking in terms of newer statistical approaches to how we might develop different dietary patterns using these modeling techniques. So again, that's an area of future direction that that we felt was important. So in addition to the, the questions around um, the food patterns, we also examine the question about early exposure to foods that are considered allergenic. so certain types of fish, eggs, certain nuts. And that's one where in the review of the evidence, We've felt that there could be exposure during pregnancy, lactation, and early childhood, once complementary foods are included, there could be exposure to these allergenic foods. Obviously, that's something that we would encourage be done in coordination with the health care provider, particularly if we know that there if the family knows that there's a particular risk. For things like nuts that could be introduced, one needs to think about avoiding anything that's a choking hazard as well. So there really is an expansion of the way we're thinking about dietary patterns because of the importance of beginning in these early years to begin to establish dietary patterns that meet nutrient needs and can be carried forward. So they provide better dietary patterns as children age.
0: Absolutely, that's so fascinating too. And it, it really feels like you're laying a lot of groundwork for, for future committees, like you stated. So I know that you know this is a very large, complex report. It's around an incredibly complex issue, as I'm sure we have highlighted through our discussion. And I know that not all the recommendations in the report may be accepted at, when it's all said and done, but I'm curious as to what you both might feel are sort of the, the most important points and, and maybe the, the what you want most people to know and understand about this report. Um, Barbara, I'll start with you and then Rick, we'll, we'll go to you after that.
1: Okay, great. So in the integration chapter, we we highlighted two themes, and those two themes really are my key points. The first is the importance of considering life stage in the dietary guidelines and, and recognizing that there are special nutritional considerations at each life stage, and that once we began to make improvements in recommended food patterns at each of these life stages, That has the potential then to influence healthy food choices at the next life stage. Essentially, to me, it's a message of it's never too early or too late to improve dietary patterns. And so that second theme then is around dietary patterns and that these provide a framework for the dietary guidelines both within and across life stages. So healthy dietary patterns are defined by the quality of foods that are included, as well as the foods should, that should be limited. And just to remind you, the pattern that we identified that was associated with beneficial outcomes, higher intake of vegetables, fruits, legumes, whole grains, low or nonfat dairy, lean meat and poultry, seafood, nuts, and unsaturated vegetable oils, and then low composi- low consumption of red and processed meats, sugar sweetened foods, and drinks, and refined grains. So, by looking at those healthy dietary patterns, they can promote health, achieve nutrient adequacy and energy balance, and reduce the risk for diet related chronic diseases. So, you know, while it's important to understand how any single food or food component can fit within a pattern. It's that full context of the dietary pattern that's critically important. And we actually developed a figure to try and and convey that message. So I think an additional advantage of the um, focusing on those core elements of a healthy dietary pattern is that then there's much more flexibility to develop dietary patterns that fit individual preferences, cultural preferences. So uh, to me, these two elements of life stage and dietary pattern are so important and really being able to expand out the types of dietary patterns so that more Americans can resonate with the recommendations that are in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans.
2: Yeah, well, Barb hit it on uh, the nail on the head, uh, I think, but I'll just uh, maybe mention one or two other thoughts sort of stemming from, from what Barb was saying. I think we have to recognize that there isn't a one size fits all diet that that we see in in the lay literature and and just in everyday life that people are always looking for magic ways to moderate their their body weight or or achieve some goal that has a dietary basis whether it's performance or or, or whatever. And the upshot of the work of the of the committee is that patterns are important and that there is individual variability and that there are many ways that a given individual can meet their needs and stay within energy bounds. the The committee quite purposefully did not endorse one particular dietary approach, uh, rather, It it emphasized the importance of recognizing individual variability. The other point that that I guess I would raise is that we should avoid vilifying individual foods. We have to recognize that a diet that is healthful is healthful only if it's consumed. And if we don't enjoy the foods that we eat, we're not likely to follow that diet and derive the health benefits from it. And so things like uh, solid fats and added sugars And and sodium can play an important part, not can, do play an important part in the enjoyment of food. And so they have a role. It's just a matter of consuming them in moderation, making smarter choices in frequency of consumption or in portion sizes of of those particular nutrients that uh, food components that we'd like people to moderate.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I think those are those are all great take home messages and a good place for us to leave our conversation today. Thanks to both of you uh, so much. I really appreciate all of your insight and all the work that you both contributed to this really important report. If you're enjoying Food Disruptors, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or by connecting with IFT. You can find us at IFT on Twitter and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Food Disruptors. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden. Have a great day, everyone.